Buddhism and Modern Psychology. Lecture 2. The Buddhist Prescription. Part 1. The Eightfold Path. In the previous lecture, we talked about the first two noble truths, the Buddha's diagnosis of the human predicament. Now we're going to talk about the third and fourth noble truths, which contain the Buddha's prescription, the cure for what ails us. And also, they point to meditation, which we'll then talk about in some depth. Now, I guess you could call the first two noble truths the bad news and good news, respectively. The bad news is that human life is full of dukkha, of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness. And the good news in the second noble truth is that we have at least isolated the cause. The cause is craving, clinging to things that are not going to last forever. Well, in that sense, I guess you could say that the third and fourth noble truths are, respectively, more good news and then some bad news. The third noble truth tells us what the cure is. It is the abandonment of craving and of clinging. The fourth noble truth spells out the path you have to follow if you're going to attain full liberation. And it turns out that it is an eightfold path. There are eight things you have to master if you want to be liberated. So it starts with right view, which is to say getting a proper understanding of the Buddhist teaching. And then there are a lot of other right things. I'm not going to get into all of them. But at the end, we then see right mindfulness and right concentration, which point us to meditation. Now, some people might be surprised that there's so much stuff on the path that isn't about meditation. I think there's an idea in the West that what Buddhists mainly do is sit around and meditate. Well, actually, in Asia, most Buddhists don't meditate at all. Most lay Buddhists do not meditate. A lot of Buddhist monks meditate. But if they're meditating really seriously, and certainly if they're meditating with the hope of reaching nirvana, you can bet that they're going to be paying attention to all eight parts of the path. Another thing that may surprise people about the Eightfold Path is these three parts of the path here, these three factors, which are about ethical behavior and cultivating virtue. I think there's an idea in the West that Buddhism doesn't have this kind of hang-up about moral conduct that the Abrahamic religions have. You know, there's not all these oppressive lists of do's and don'ts, no Ten Commandments. Well, actually, these three parts of the path have quite a bit of overlap with the Ten Commandments, and in some ways they're more demanding. This, this factor right here, right speech, says that you not only have to avoid saying things that are not true, you actually have to avoid saying mean things about people, avoid idle gossip, and I don't know about you, but if I were to try to completely eliminate gossip from my life, that would take some pretty serious reform. Maybe if you offered me nirvana in exchange for it, I could do it, but I'm not honestly sure. Then when we get to the meditative part of the path, there's more heavy lifting to be done, more hard work. And one reason the work is so hard is because, remember, uh, to get to liberation, we're supposed to abandon craving, abandon clinging, we're supposed to lose our aversion to unpleasant things, and that's obviously not going to be easy. Meditation isn't the only thing that goes into cultivating that kind of discipline, but it's a big part of it, and it's going to take a lot of work. There's another reason that meditation is going to involve work if you want to get all the way to nirvana, and that is that, remember, this isn't just liberation. It's enlightenment. It's seeing the essence of reality clearly as the Buddha taught it. And part of doing that is back up here in the first 
factor of the path, right view. That's where you try to gain an intellectual understanding of Buddhist doctrine, but it's in the meditative part of the path where you try to gain an experiential understanding of Buddhist doctrine. So, for example, with the idea of impermanence, you would meditate and, and thereby gain a, just an intuitive apprehension of the impermanence of things, the impermanence of your feelings, of your thoughts, and of everything that comes into your mind. And this apprehension would in turn reinforce the intellectual understanding of Buddhist doctrine and strengthen your commitment to it. Now, you might ask, if it takes so much work to attain liberation, how many people have actually done it? Well, this question came up in a conversation I recently had on a website I run called bloggingheads.tv where we have video dialogues. Uh, I was talking to a very highly esteemed Buddhist scholar and monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi, and just to give you some idea of what a serious scholar he is, um, this is a sizable chunk of the Buddhist canon, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. It's more than 2,000 pages of translation and commentary, and this is the achievement of Bhikkhu Bodhi, the person I was talking to. And so I was talking to him and I thought, well, he's obviously a serious Buddhist. You know, he says he meditates a lot. He's, he's sitting there in a monastery. Maybe he's attained enlightenment. Maybe I'll ask him. Maybe this is kind of a personal question, but have you attained liberation? <laughs> no, not by a long shot. Not by a long shot. So yeah. <laughs> are there people alive today that you think have attained liberation? <laughs> I would say that there's quite possible some monks in maybe Thailand and maybe Burma, maybe a few in the forests of Sri Lanka. Well, he may not have attained nirvana, but he does seem happy. And for that matter, I've seen a lot of happy Buddhists. Now, you may wonder, you know, what is the deal here? I mean, we've got a whole religion that is supposedly devoted to helping people reach nirvana and virtually nobody ever reaches it. What kind of religion is that? You know, with Christianity, it seems a lot more straightforward. The idea is to get to heaven, and all you have to do is accept Jesus as your savior. Well, actually, for lay Buddhists in Asia, the kind of incentive structure, if you will, is a lot more like that in Christianity than you might imagine. Uh, they may not aspire to escape the cycle of rebirth in this life, which is what nirvana would accomplish. They can hope to get a more favorable rebirth in the next round, and that can include going to a kind of heaven where they will not stay forever, but stay for a very long time before another rebirth. And the way they do this is to pursue virtuous behavior, and that increases their chances of a favorable rebirth. So the religion does um, make sense on its own terms. I want to emphasize that there are people who would disagree with Bhikkhu Bodhi about this liberation thing. There are people who will tell you that they are enlightened, and who am I to judge? And there are meditation teachers who will insist that, yes, liberation is within reach. Still, I think it's safe to say that for most of us, nirvana is not going to happen today, next week, next month, next year, next decade. Um, still, there is some good news. You know, if you can't attain full liberation, there is such thing as partial liberation. If you can't eliminate all your suffering, you can eliminate some of it. If you can't reach complete equanimity, you can get more tranquility and balance than you have now. And your life, according to reports from people who have done this, your life can change considerably and even be transformed. So I guess the way I think of meditative practice is as being on a kind of spectrum. 
So at one end, you have strictly therapeutic practice. Maybe you, you come home from work stressed out, and you do 10 minutes of meditation, and you feel better, and, and that's it. You don't think about any Buddhist doctrines that may be associated with meditation. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's nirvana, way, way down there. Um, but then I would say that at some point, as you move toward the nirvana end of the spectrum, you enter a zone that we could call spiritual practice, not just therapeutic, but spiritual practice. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, this is just my definition. You know, there's no official definition of spiritual. But what I would say is that if practice qualifies for the term spiritual, then the motivation is not just about self-help. There is a desire to, to become a better person, to help others, and to see the world more clearly. And there's the beginning of an understanding that there's a connection between these two goals of becoming a better person, seeing the world more clearly. So there's a desire to kind of strip yourself of some of the delusions and misperceptions that seem to be natural for human beings, and in the process, become a better person. So you're trying to align yourself with the truth about the world, the truth about other people, about yourself, and with moral truth. Of course, it's good news that you reduce your suffering in the process, and it's fine that this is one thing that sustains the practice, but that's just not all that it's about. Now, I don't want to overemphasize this distinction between the therapeutic and the spiritual, because for one thing, even if you just reduce your stress, then you're probably going to see the world a little more clearly, and you're probably going to become a better person, if only in the sense of making the people around you less unhappy than you might make them when you're stressed out. And also, if you're doing this kind of therapeutic practice, it may happen that you start expanding the practice. You, you, you don't want to just get, a, get rid of your stress. You realize that, that this can help with anxiety, with sorrow, and so on. You may start meditating more. And I think it tends to happen when people do that, that they do become better people and more considerate of others. In fact, one interesting thing about Buddhism is this kind of organic connection between self-help and helping others. It's not automatic, uh, and maybe that's why the Buddha included explicit ethical strictures, but there is something natural about the progression from helping yourself to becoming a more um, considerate person. Still, when I think about practice that qualifies for the term spiritual, I do think about the aspiration being about more than self-help. So kind of the driving dissatisfaction isn't just about the fact that we're born into these machines that sometimes make us suffer. It's that we're born into these machines that make it hard to see things clearly, that fill us with misperceptions that lead us to make other people suffer. Now, a lot of you have probably seen the movie The Matrix, and in that movie, the character played by Keanu Reeves realizes that he and everyone else on the planet uh, is actually living in a dream world. They've, they've actually, what they thought was reality is really just an, an hallucination, and it's been inflicted on them by their robot overlords. Um, and Keanu Reeves then joins a rebellion that aims to attain complete liberation. Now, I don't think either modern psychology or mainstream Buddhism tells us that we're quite that deluded about reality, 
But it is interesting that a lot of Western Buddhists identify with that movie. They call it a Dharma movie. They, they saw in it a kind of allegory, um, and, they, and they see themselves as being in the process of overcoming delusion in a very significant sense and, and, and kind of fighting for liberation. And, and I do think that Buddhist practice in the spiritual sense involves having a little Keanu Reeves in you, you know, just, just saying, you know, I just want to see the truth or at least come as close to that as possible. I want to see things more clearly. Now, I hope I haven't sounded too dismissive in the course of this segment about full-fledged enlightenment. I mean, I think it's, it's a very interesting question what enlightenment in the Buddhist sense would feel like. Uh, and in fact, later in the course, we're going to be talking to some people who, uh, if not enlightened, are a lot closer to that than I am, and, and we're going to hear what they have to say about this. And I'm interested in particular in the question of, is enlightenment, as described by Buddhists, is that something like what a psychologist might say your consciousness would be like if we stripped it of all the misperceptions and delusions that seem to be kind of built into us by natural selection. So that's going to come later in the course, but right now in the next segment of this lecture, we're going to turn to the subject of meditation. We're going to talk about different kinds of meditation and about what they have to offer. Lecture 2, Part 2, Meditation. Okay, so in this segment, uh, we're going to talk a little about meditation. This is not a how-to meditate course, um, and if it were, I wouldn't be the most qualified to teach it by a long shot. But I did want to give both those of you who have meditated and those of you who haven't some sense for the varieties of meditation uh, and meditative experience that are available, and in particular, how they connect to themes in Buddhist thought and um, in this course. Now, if you've never meditated, you may have the idea that meditation is this really hard thing. You've got to master this technique and practice, practice, practice. And you know what? You may actually be right. I mean, different people are different. Some people it comes very easily to, not to me. Um, I actually had meditated a number of times uh, without feeling that it was sufficiently rewarding to sustain a practice. I finally went with kind of total immersion and went to a, a one-week silent meditation retreat. And at that point, uh, meditation became kind of accessible to me, you might say. Uh, even then, it took a lot of work. Uh, but again, your, your mileage may vary. Um, and moreover, there are some things you can do, some kind of shortcuts you can try to take to at least get a sense for what uh, meditation may have to offer. Now. One of these came up in a conversation I recently had uh, with Shenzhen Young, and I'll show you a little bit of that conversation. Um, Shenzhen Young uh, is an example of one of these Western Buddhists I've talked about. In fact, he was kind of a pioneer in Western Buddhism. I think it was more than 40 years ago that, uh, having left America, uh, he became ordained as a uh, Buddhist monk in Japan, and then he came back and became a teacher of, of meditation. And he's, he's kind of got his own system of teaching meditation. He, he might not call himself, in every respect, uh, an Orthodox Buddhist. I don't know, but his, his, his teaching is very much grounded in, in a Buddhist sensibility. So in this part of the conversation, 
Um, we start out talking about something that, that was alluded to in lecture one, which is how meditation can change your view of your feelings. When meditation works, uh, it gives you a skill set that allows you to experience physical and emotional discomfort with uh, greater poignancy, but less problem. So by greater poignancy, you almost mean you actually perceive it more acutely in a sense, but it causes you less trouble? What do you mean by... That's exactly what I mean. Okay. That, so you learn how to uh, escape into discomfort. There's two ways to deal with discomfort. Escape from it. If you can, great. <laughs> but what if you can't? Well, if you can't, it's good to have in your quiver of uh, life arrows, so to speak, uh, the ability to escape into it. Then mm -hmm. you sort of have your cake and eat it too. You experience the richness of being human, uh, and part of that is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But um, the sense of problem, the sense of suffering uh, is diminished. Mm -hmm. So now how that takes place, well, that's at least an hour talk. Um, it is, although can I interrupt you and, and, and just mention one little kind of exercise I've suggested to people as a shortcut to getting the, the idea that I think sometimes actually works. What I've said is when you're feeling really sad, and these are people who haven't necessarily meditated at all, when you're just feeling sad on the border of depressed, sit down, close your eyes, and just try to accept it and just say, bring it on. What, is, what does sadness feel like? Pay attention to it. Um, you know, ex just accept it. J just, just ask you. Just close your eyes and examine the feeling of sadness. Get closer to it. And some of them do report. You know, although they haven't meditated, that oddly they do sense some of the kind of diminishing of, of the suffering. And you know what I mean? Well, I totally. Of course, of you. Course you do. Uh, however, I would uh, just slightly disagree and say those people, in fact, have meditated. Okay. You just gave them the essence of meditation. Right. Uh, remember, you don't have to have your eyes closed and be sitting on the floor. What What did you have them do? You had them focus on the discomfort. You had them try to be precise about the discomfort. And you had them uh, try to not fight with the discomfort. So meditation could be as easy for you as one, two, three. Could be. Um, but I do want to add one asterisk uh, to, to that conversation. Um, you know, Shenzhen said, you know, meditation doesn't have to be about sitting down and closing your eyes. That's true. Uh, and for example, you can find yourself in line at a store. You're getting frustrated because the person in front of you is taking so long. Why didn't they remember to take their credit card out before they got to the cash register? And then you can just decide to look at this feeling of irritation and observe it, and then it loses its power over you and kind of dissolves. That can happen. But I do think uh, that mainly happens with people who are doing a regular meditative practice, uh, meditating so regularly that they can then carry the practice into their everyday lives. Okay, so as for kinds of meditative practices, well, for starters, there, there are different kinds of meditation associated with different Buddhist traditions. Um, so, for example, uh, 
Tibetan Buddhists, when they meditate, often do a lot of uh, visualizing of images. Uh, you know, uh, Zen Buddhists may meditate on these koans, um, these, uh, you know, these cryptic or paradoxical sayings or questioning, questions. Um, and sometimes uh, Zen, Zen Buddhists actually meditate, do meditate with their eyes open, sitting down, kind of looking uh, at a wall or something. Uh, in Vipassana meditation, which is particularly common in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of emphasis on observing the workings of your mind. So there, there are a lot of different traditions. There are stereotypes about the people who practice the tradition. So I heard once, you know, Tibetan meditation is for artists, Zen is for poets, Vipassana is for psychologists. Um, but I do think ultimately these traditions have more in common than they have differences among them. Um, I think, for example, observing your own mind is to some extent something that winds up happening in almost any tradition, uh, even if it is a more explicit goal in Vipassana meditation. And in general, I have found in uh, talking to people from different traditions, when I talk to really serious meditators, by which I mean people who have meditated a lot more than I have, I, I find that they're talking the, the same language. When they're talking about the most profound experiences they've had, uh, they tend to be grounded in, in Buddhist doctrine and related to um, the Buddhist teaching. So I think um, maybe more useful than covering all the varieties of meditation associated with different Buddhist traditions is to look at two basic kinds of meditation, uh, both of which are often found within a single tradition. And these are the two types that are pointed to by those final factors in the Eightfold Path um, that we looked at in the previous segment. That is right mindfulness and right concentration. Those are two kinds of meditation. Now, concentration meditation uh, involves focusing on something very intently. It could be a mantra, could be your breath, your breathing, could be um, a visual image, and you, you focus on it very single-mindedly, get absorbed in it. Um, and this kind of meditation uh, is said to bring great serenity, even bliss. Um, and in fact, I can attest to the bliss. Uh, one, one thing that happened during my first meditation retreat was like day four or day five, um, I was focused on my breath, uh, breath after breath, and that was something I had had a lot of trouble doing at the beginning of the retreat, but I got really absorbed in it. Um, and I suddenly just entered this state that can only be described as blissful. And there was a lot of powerful visual stuff going on, um, and I mean, I just remember thinking, you know, this must be what heroin is like. I mean, it was an amazing feeling. And so I was like very proud of myself. You know, I thought I'd finally arrived as a meditator. So I arranged to talk to one of the teachers after the meditation retreat. And so I had this little session with him and I described the thing, you know, to him. And I thought he was going to give me a medal or something. I don't know. You know, I, I guess I didn't think that I had attained nirvana, but I thought I had done, you know, gotten to some kind of higher plane. And he said, well, sounds, sounds nice. And, and then he said, but don't get attached to it. And what he meant, first of all, he's being a good Buddhist and reminding me, don't get too attached to any uh, pleasure. Um, but secondly, this was a retreat in the Vipassana tradition, which means it was about mindfulness meditation, the second of these two kinds of meditation. It, it wasn't fundamentally about concentration or attaining bliss or anything else. 
We were supposed to use meditation to observe things mindfully, okay? You, you, you could use and should use concentration techniques to get to a point where your mind is kind of stable and calm enough to do the mindfulness meditation, but that's it. I should have gotten off that rocket ship, you know, at some, at some lower level than I did. Um, so what is mindfulness meditation? Well, uh, it consists of observing anything in your realm of experience, your own mind, your own feelings, anything you can feel, sounds you hear while meditating, and if you're carrying it into everyday life, uh, it can be things you see. Uh, but it involves observing these things in a kind of unusual way, uh, in a special way. And you saw some of this in that conversation with Shenzhen Young, in the way he talked about viewing unpleasant feelings. You know, normally, uh, your relationship to a, to a feeling like anxiety uh, is, first of all, you don't like it, and second of all, it is controlling your thinking. So, for example, you may be sitting there going, uh, I'm going to screw up that presentation tomorrow, or you may be doing the counter-narrative and saying, well, it'll be okay because there's probably nobody in the audience who really matters that much anyway, but either way, the anxiety is controlling what you think about. And it's kind of ironic, you know, here you've got this feeling that you really don't approve of, you don't like, and, and yet you're letting it control your thoughts. Well, as you may have uh, gleaned from uh, the conversation with Shenzhen, uh, with mindfulness meditation, you are observing, in this case a feeling, uh, without like or dislike, that's the idea, without judging it, so to speak. You're observing it, uh, you know, kind of objectively. Um, and as a result, it, it doesn't control your thoughts. Um, now, when you think about it, uh, this is kind of an unnatural thing to do, because after all, feelings were designed by natural selection to influence our thought and perception. We already saw a little of that in lecture one, the way fear can influence what you literally see. Um, and that is very much what feelings are about from natural selection's point of view. They're supposed to to help govern our behavior and our thoughts and our perception. So to try to turn the tables in this way um, and, and look at feelings in a way that, that can disempower them uh, is, is really you know, quite, a, quite a striking thing to do um, and, and very unnatural. You know? and, it's, and it's very much kind of a violation of natural selection's agenda in a certain sense. Um, and this, this uh, came through in a description of mindfulness meditation that I heard not long ago when I was listening to a lecture from Bhikkhu Bodhi, whom you may remember from our previous segment. These are lectures he actually delivered uh, quite a while ago, but they are available online. Um, and here's what he said about um, mindfulness. He said, Ordinarily, the faculty of attention is used as an instrument for serving our purposes, our biological and psychological needs. But mindfulness is a kind of attention which operates independently of all ulterior aims and purposes. I like that idea of, uh, you know, talking about our, our, our basic biological and psychological needs as ulterior, you know, as in some sense kind of illegitimate. Whereas, you know, from natural selection's point of view, no, these are, these are the central valid uh, governing things of your life. This should determine everything you see about the world. Um, and he's kind of wanting to cast them aside. Um, he goes on to say, Mindfulness is attention that functions in an atmosphere of detachment. It's attention that aspires towards a pure objectivity, an awareness which reflects the nature of objects exactly as they are, 
without adding to them, without elaborating upon them, without interpreting them through the screens of subjective evaluation and commentary. So the idea is that uh, the mind as it ordinarily works um, and is designed to work is not a reliable um, instrument of perception and of thought. Now I agree with that. Uh, I believe that the human mind as it naturally works is not necessarily a reliable way of looking at the world in, in the most truthful way possible and we'll be hearing more of that theme. But I do want to pause now and just emphasize what a radical reorientation mindfulness is. You know, mindfulness, I think, has this reputation for being this kind of gentle thing, you know, you eat mindfully, you go through life mindfully and appreciate the beauty of life. And, and that's actually all true. That's, that's possible. But at the same time, there's a kind of edge to mindfulness um, because it does constitute a kind of rebellion against the agenda of natural selection. It's not the way we're designed to work. Uh, now, in the next segment, we're going to hear a little more about that. We're going to talk more about mindfulness and, and, and flesh it out. And we're also going to talk about, you know, mindful eating and, and, and things like that. And we're going to look at what is going on, uh, according to science, in the brains of people who do mindfulness meditation and, for that matter, other forms of meditation. Lecture 2, Part 3, Mindfulness Meditation and the Brain. Well, there's been a lot in the news in recent years about the brain and meditation. You may have read that meditation increases gamma wave activity, or you may have read that over time meditation can increase the amount of white matter in the brain. Well, I'm not sure which of these findings are going to hold up in the long run. And in some cases, I'm not even really sure what they mean. But there is one finding that's easy to relate to meditative experience in a pretty straightforward way. You tell meditators about this finding and they say, yeah, it makes sense that my brain would be doing that while I'm meditating. And this finding has to do with a part of the brain called the default mode network. And the basic finding, as in this paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, is that when people meditate, the default mode network kind of gets quieter, it gets less and less active. Uh, and this leads to the question of what the default mode network is. And for the answer, we turn to the lead author of this paper, Judson Brewer, who when he did the study was at Yale Medical School and now is at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. So it's called the default mode network because this seems to be active when we're not doing anything in particular. And if you think about any average person walking down the street not doing anything in particular, there's actually a whole lot going on in their brain. They're thinking about themselves usually. So they might be regretting something they did in the past, worrying about something that's coming up, planning for something, um, fantasizing. You know, lots of things that are happening in our brains uh, when we're not doing anything in particular. And this network of brain regions seems to get activated or co-activated uh, when we're doing these types of self-referential processing tasks. So you might say that what the default mode network does is take your mind somewhere other than where you are. It does that in a spatial sense. In other words, you're probably not going to be focused on your immediate environment when, when the network is active. And it does so in a temporal sense, along the dimension of time as well. They've done studies where they interrupt people while their minds are wandering. And, and basically, the, the, the default mode network is your mind wandering. And they ask them what they're thinking about. And usually, they're thinking either about something in the past 
or something in the future, more the future than the past, but they're usually not thinking about the present. Now, it makes sense in that light that the default mode network would get quiet as you meditate because, after all, one way to phrase kind of one of the main points of meditation is be here now. That is the title of a famous book that was published in the 1970s about meditation and spirituality. Now, when you're meditating, you may notice that the default mode network does not always surrender quietly, right? You're trying to focus on the breath and suddenly a thought bubbles up. You know, what about uh, this email I've got to write later today? It's kind of delicate. How, how should I handle it? Or you'll think of someone you may have offended a couple of days ago, wonder how you can make amends, or you'll think about somebody you've got a crush on, how you can impress them when you see them in a couple of days, whatever. Those things are your default mode network asserting itself. And in a way, it's just doing its job. You know, the, the, the job of the default mode network seems to be to take advantage of free time. So in other words, if you're not engaged in some task that requires focus, if you're not playing some sport or writing some report or, or just looking at somebody and wondering whether that's somebody you know, you know, if you're not doing one of these things that requires conscious focus, then in a way that's free time. And what the default mode network does is try to use that time in some sense usefully, you know, taking care of your business, your social business, your professional business, um, whatever. Now, when the default mode network does quiet down during meditation, that doesn't necessarily mean you've entered a state of mindfulness. The studies show that the network quiets down during various kinds of meditation, mindfulness meditation, but also concentration meditation, for example. Now, it certainly is an important first step toward mindfulness for the network to calm down, for you to kind of get beyond the kind of self-involvement that the network keeps you enmeshed in. But in order to reach a state of mindfulness, there's a second sense in which you have to escape self-involvement. Remember, to look at something mindfully is to look at it objectively, to look at it not from your ordinary subjective perspective. So a true test of mindfulness would be, say, to think of someone you don't like and see if you can just kind of look at the feeling of dislike and not get caught up in it, not let it carry your train of thought away so that you don't wind up rehearsing a litany of grievances against the person or plotting revenge against the person. Then, then you're closer to a state of mindfulness. It's a common aspiration to carry mindfulness out of the meditation hall into the real world, to carry this attitude of kind of non-reactivity into your ordinary life. Um, one reason that's hard is because life is full of things you do react to. Uh, psychologists have done studies where they show people pictures of various kinds of objects and things and sometimes they ask them, how do you feel about this? And the people say, well, I like it, I don't like it, whatever. Sometimes the methodology is subtler. There's a, there's a more kind of circuitous way of figuring out whether people are having a positive or negative affective reaction to the thing, whether they are or are not feeling a favorable or an unfavorable feeling to it. And uh, the general finding is that people do have affective reactions to a whole lot of things. In one study, they actually asked people to morally evaluate everyday objects, asked them if these things are good or bad in a moral sense, and uh, people were pretty willing to do that. 
Uh, as Paul Bloom, who was one of the co-authors of that study, explained to me recently, Paul is a well-known professor of psychology at Yale, and here's what he said. The paper's titled something like, Is a Refrigerator Good or Evil? And so we just had a list of items. Now, some of the items were meant to have valence. Um, they were uh, like a thumbscrew um, or a vaccine. What are you saying? A thumbscrew, bad vaccine, good. But we also, you know, refrigerator, sock, cloud. And, you know, people would, um, would, would had no problem at all. We, we thought first that they'd find a question nonsensical. How good is it? How bad is it? They readily answered all of them. And there, were, there was considerable consensus. Now, none of this is to say that most things in the world elicit a strong positive or negative affective reaction in us. In fact, you can look around at things in your environment now, and I'm sure you can look at plenty of things where you don't have any particular reaction, or you, you might say, I kind of like that, or that's mildly annoying, but it's, you know, it's far from overpowering. However, it is the case that the things that occupy our awareness do tend to be things that we feel positively or negatively about in a somewhat strong way. So if you're walking down the street and you see an enemy or you see a friend, somebody you feel bad about or good about, or you smell some horrible odor or some sublime smell from a restaurant, um, that will get your attention. That will be what you focus on. And this makes sense when you think about it because the brain is designed to get us to focus on things that matter to us. And the way the brain encodes the extent to which things matter to us is to assign them a positive or negative feeling. And the more they matter, the stronger the feeling. So it, it, it just makes sense that your awareness would tend to be occupied by these kind of meaningful things, things that do elicit a strong uh, reaction, and it also makes sense that the, the default mode network would tend to, to inject these things into your consciousness that also you feel somewhat strongly about. They matter to you for, for good or for bad. And this points to the basic challenge of mindfulness. The idea of mindfulness is to take an objective attitude, in some sense a detached attitude, toward the things you're paying attention to and yet your brain is designed to pay attention to those things it is hardest to be objective and detached about. So here's an experiment you might try when you're walking down the street. Try to pay attention to things you don't normally pay attention to. Now what those things are will depend on what demographic you're in. So suppose you are a young heterosexual male and you're probably in the habit of paying attention to young females and especially if you find them attractive or intriguing, paying even more attention to them, and you probably pay some attention to young males. Kind of size them up, compare them to yourself, maybe they are, after all, in some sense, the competition. Well, try paying attention to, like, elderly people. Um, one thing you'll find is it's hard, it's not natural to pay attention to these people because you don't care that much about them, but you may also find if you do pay attention to them, it's easier to appraise them calmly. You're, you're less involved, you have less at stake, and for that reason, you may look at them more objectively. You know, my brother, when he reached an age where he felt that women were no longer paying attention to him, said, you know, it's not that they think I'm unattractive, they just don't realize I exist. And that's kind of true. You know, our, our unconscious mind, I think, often excludes from our awareness the things that we're just not that interested. So all of this explains why it really is hard 
and in some sense unnatural to just walk down the street with a truly mindful attitude toward everything we're paying attention to. And this subject came up in my conversation with Paul Bloom. What we've kind of said is that everything you notice, you have an affective reaction to, and that makes sense in the sense that if it is not relevant to your Darwinian prospects for good or bad, there's no reason to notice it in the first place. That's right. That's right. I mean, stripping the affective reactions away from our perception seems so profoundly anti-Darwinian. It is, and I know you've made this point before, but it seems like the, the strongest way to give the middle finger to our selfish genes, which, which is, you know, we're going to take away this sort of taint, everything. And in, in for normally, you know, the whole world is colored by, by whether it's good for us or bad for us. And, and, and to try to live without that seems interesting. That is, I think, what uh, kind of hardcore Buddhism aspires to do. I would just add a couple of asterisks to that. First of all, when I associated a Buddhist perspective with the things that Paul had said, I didn't mean to say that everything he had said was phrased exactly in a technical sense the way a Buddhist scholar would phrase it. So, for example, when he talked about stripping perception of affective reaction, you might say it's actually more like training your perception on the affective reaction and in that way, sometimes kind of de- depriving the reaction of its power. And for that matter, more broadly, I want to emphasize that whenever I speak of detachment or getting a critical distance from a feeling, that terminology can be misleading because there's a sense that when you're observing something mindfully, like a feeling, you're actually getting quite close to it, closer than usual. Because ordinarily, our reaction to a kind of negative feeling like anxiety or fears, to want to push it away, to want to think of something or do something that will rid us of it. And to view it mindfully is kind of to be unafraid of it, to be willing to just get up close to it and and look at it. Um, And then sometimes it will tend to lose its power. Um, So in that sense, talking about distance from detachment from can be misleading. And for that reason, some people prefer terms like non-attachment to terms like detachment. The final thing I would say about that exchange with Paul is that when I refer to a hardcore Buddhism, I don't mean to suggest that there's anything harsh in the mindful sensibility, and I also certainly don't mean to suggest ever that there's no pleasure to be found in it. And in fact, you see this uh, sometimes on meditation retreats. A lot of people on retreats report how much pleasure there is to be found, which is interesting because a meditation retreat is a place where it's relatively easy, relatively easy, to get into a kind of mindful uh, frame of mind. And one reason is just because that, you know, a lot of the stuff that annoys you in life is not there. You're not getting emails, some of which may agitate you. You're generally off the grid. You're not hearing any news about the world. So so it's easier to sink into a, a mindful point of view. And people who've been to retreats can tell you about things like mindful eating. When I first went to a meditation retreat, I went into the dining hall. I couldn't understand, you know, why do so many people have their eyes closed while they eat? Well, before long, I got the picture, which is that if you close your eyes and focus on that moment of eating, you're not looking 
ahead to, to the next byte you're going to take. You're not being distracted by the default mode network, which is pretty quiet. And you're not having a conversation because these are silent meditation retreats. Nobody's talking. If you do that, you can find a pleasure in, in one moment of eating that is pretty much unprecedented in my experience. Similarly, people on meditation retreats often report, and I can vouch for this, that your appreciation of beauty can reach a new level, um, including the beauty of things that normally you might not even notice, like the, the pattern of grain in wood, which, you know, if your default mode network were bubbling along, you just um, might not even see. So we're going to close by revisiting our friend Yifa, the Buddhist nun, as she describes what it's like to meditate, because her description sounds to me very much like what you would expect it to feel like for the default mode network to start to quiet down. When you meditate, it's just like uh, um, the water, you know, the, in the water, you let the dust settle down. So water become very clean and also very peaceful mm -hmm. or even still. So if uh, the water still, the surface like a mirror and it will reflect the surrounding as things they are. So meditation is help is to help us to see things as they really are. Speaking of Yifa, in the final segment of this lecture, we're going to get back to a question that she originally raised earlier when she said that during meditation, she gets this sense that her feelings are not real. I promised I'd get back to that question, and that's what we'll do now. We're going to ask, what does it mean for feelings to be real or not real, to be true or false? How can we tell when our feelings are trustworthy and when they're not? Lecture 2, Part 4. Can our feelings be trusted? So now we're going to talk about feelings. And I know we've talked a lot about feelings already, but feelings are very important, and, and not just for the obvious reason, but also because one of the main things this course is about is whether the Buddhist prescription helps us see the world more clearly. And one of the main parts of the Buddhist prescription is this idea of viewing the world mindfully. And that can change your relationship to your feelings. Um, you know, there can be feelings that used to govern you and they no longer will in the same, in the same way. Uh, there are feelings that maybe used to mediate your interaction with reality in a way that they no longer will. So if we're going to find out whether this changed relationship to your feelings actually helps you see the world more clearly, well, it would help to know what was the relationship between these feelings and reality to begin with? Were the feelings themselves reliable guides to reality in some sense? Were they trustworthy? Uh, does it make sense to say that some were true and some were false? These are the kinds of questions that we're going to grapple with now, and we're going to pay particular attention to two feelings, uh, feelings that I think it's safe to say we're all familiar with. One is anxiety and one is rage. Now, the Buddha talked a lot about what he called feeling tone or hedonic tone. The idea was just that there are pleasant feelings, there are unpleasant feelings, and there are what he called neutral feelings. 
Now, the Buddha was not talking about emotions. In fact, in the Buddha's teaching, there's no word that translates as emotions. He did talk about individual emotions like fear, but he did not address uh, emotions as a category, generically. He was just talking about kind of raw feeling, the basic ingredients of feeling. It can be positive or negative, pleasant or unpleasant. But certainly that does pertain to emotions because after all, emotions contain those ingredients. And in fact, most emotions are overwhelmingly either positive, like joy, or negative, like fear or anxiety. Uh, some emotions maybe are kind of complicated mixtures of positive and negative, but in any event, these feeling tones are essential ingredients in our emotions. Now, one question the Buddha didn't ask, and really couldn't ask given when he lived, is what is the evolutionary function of feelings? Why are there positive and negative pleasant and unpleasant feeling tones? Somebody who did address that question was a biologist, a biologist named George Romains, uh, who was writing uh, a couple decades after Darwin wrote The Origin of Species, and here's what he said. Pleasure and pain must have been evolved as the subjective accompaniment of processes which are respectively beneficial or injurious to the organism, and so evolved for the purpose or to the end that the organism should seek the one and shun the other. Well, that, that makes sense, that, that these basic feelings are fundamentally about approach and avoidance, or at least were about that in the first instance when they arose. It's certainly consistent with human experience, right? If, if there's something you want to avoid, like a rattlesnake, it's giving you this bad feeling, this feeling of aversion. Uh, if there's something you approach, like food, it gives you this good feeling, feeling of attraction. Um, and we assume that in our primate relatives, there are probably these kinds of feelings that are also correlated with approach and avoidance. And for that matter, this may go all the way down to very, very simple organisms. It may be that these water fleas, when they gravitate toward the blue light that shines down from above in this video, actually feel attracted to it. And who knows, when the blue light turns off, maybe they feel let down. In any event, what seems pretty clear is that feelings are about motivating behavior. In the case of humans, they may motivate behavior in a very direct way. So if your hand winds up in an open flame, you're going to feel the pain, retract it very rapidly. Um, sometimes feelings influence human behavior in a much more indirect way. So you might think of someone you don't like, and you start thinking about all the things that they've done wrong, and you have this litany of grievances against them. And that may have no immediate impact on your behavior, but then down the road when you're talking to someone about them, you, you've got your arsenal ready. You can say all these nasty things about them and undermine their status. Um, and that seems to be one thing the human mind tends to do. But one way or another, directly or indirectly, feelings, they kind of reach out and grab us, they influence our thoughts, they influence our behavior, we feel their impact. Now maybe this is what Yifa, the Buddhist nun, meant when she said, well, I can tell now when I meditate that feelings aren't real. After all, in mindfulness meditation, you know, the feelings don't reach out and grab you in the same way. They, if, if after reflecting on them, you make the decision not to let them reach out and grab you, then they don't have the impact. They may not feel substantial and, and weighty the way they normally do. So maybe she just meant that suddenly these feelings just kind of feel ethereal, they have no impact. 
She could also have meant, though, that, that the feelings in some sense are not true. And that raises the question of what does it mean to say that feelings are true or false? Um, and it could mean various things. One way to look at that question is from this very Darwinian perspective that we're in the middle of now, you know, if indeed the, the purpose of feelings is to steer the organism away from things that are bad for the organism and to steer it toward things that are good for it, then you might say that feelings are judgments about things in the environment, about whether good or bad for the organism, and judgments about behavior, what behavior is appropriate in light of whether these things are good or bad for you. I mean, remember, probably when feelings arose, it was in organisms that weren't smart enough to think, well, this is good for me, I should approach it, this is bad for me, I should avoid it. So feelings are kind of, uh, you know, the encoding of actual judgments about the environment, about behavior, and judgments can be true or false. So that's one way we, we could look at the truth or falsehood of feelings. Now you might say, well, wait a second, how often are feelings going to be false? I mean, after all, isn't natural selection very good at doing its job? Aren't our feelings going to pretty reliably steer us toward things that are good for us, at least by natural selection's lights, and steer us away from things that are bad for us? Well, natural selection is good at what it does, but it's also true that sometimes the environment changes so that organisms wind up in the environment that natural selection did not design them for. And humans are a good example. Look around you. Does this seem like a hunter-gatherer village to you? No. We're, looking in a, we're living in a radically transformed environment that's nothing like the environment we were designed for, and that can influence whether feelings are in this sense true or false. In other words, whether they are or not accurate judgments about things in our environment and about how we should react to them. We already earlier alluded to one example of this, powdered sugar donuts. I, I noted that powdered sugar donuts are really not great for me. It raises the question, why am I attracted to them? Well, because in the environment that humans evolved in, sweet things were generally good for you, fruits. There wasn't junk food. So this sweet tooth that made a lot of sense in that environment can, in this environment, lead us to do things that aren't so great for us. Another good example is rage. If you ask an evolutionary psychologist, well, what, what is the story with rage? What is rage for? They'll probably say something like this. In the environment of our evolution, in a hunter-gatherer village, it was very important that you sent the message that you were not to be exploited or taken advantage of. That if people tried to steal your mate or steal your food or whatever or disrespect you, there would be a price to be paid. So it was actually worth getting in a fight with people over these things. And that wasn't just to send the message to the person who had exploited you that they shouldn't do that again. But remember, in a hunter-gatherer village, your whole social universe is there. It's the audience. Everyone you're going to be dealing with on a regular basis from here on out is watching what happens when someone tries to take advantage of you. So it's all the more reason that it's worthwhile from the, the point of view of your long-term interests to uh, fight somebody over your honor or, or over respect, even if that incurs some damage to you, as long as they pay a price too. Now let's look at rage in the modern environment. Let's take an example like road rage. Okay, now 
Let's just ponder the, the absurdity of it by Darwinian lights, okay? You know, you're sitting there, the person the rage is directed toward is someone you're never going to see again. So there's no value in sending a message to them. Everyone who's watching this, the other drivers, they're also someone you're never going to see again. So there's no point whatsoever in pursuing this rage, and there's considerable danger because, after all, you are in a moving vehicle. And yet, people succumb to this rage. So this is a good example of a case where a changed environment takes a feeling that maybe at one point could be described as a reliable guide, uh, trustworthy, in some sense true, embodying true judgments, um, and, and suddenly it just doesn't make any sense at all. One final example, and in a way a more complicated example, is anxiety. Let's take public speaking, okay? Um, now, anyone who's done it has probably felt at least a little anxiety. A lot of people have felt a lot, and sometimes it's crippling anxiety. Now, the anxiety itself, you could argue, makes sense and, and was in some sense designed by natural selection to surface in such cases. At least it, it is true that, you know, what people think of us matters and mattered during evolution because our social status and how many friends we had was correlated with our chances of getting our genes into the next generation. So it makes sense that you would be anxious about impressing people. But what's not natural is to suddenly find yourself speaking to dozens or hundreds of people that you've never met before. That's not something we were designed to do. So while the anxiety could be productive in getting you to prepare well, um, it could also go way overboard. So if you have trouble sleeping the night before, or if you stand up to speak and suddenly just can't find the words, that's an example of, of anxiety being counterproductive and, and the feeling is no longer being a reliable guide to how you should act. And again, that's because the environment has changed since human evolution. Now, we had already seen some senses in which feelings can mislead us. As we had seen, feelings can make us see a snake that's not really there. Fear can do that. And feelings can kind of mislead us in the pursuit of happiness. They can make us think pleasure is going to last longer than it lasts. But in those cases, you, you could at least say that the feelings were functioning as designed by natural selection, doing the job they were supposed to do. Um, because whether or not they led to happiness, they were at least kind of taking care of the organism, getting it to err on the side of caution when there's a threat, keeping it motivated and working. But in the case of rage and anxiety in the modern environment, we're seeing cases where the feelings aren't even working well from the point of view of natural selection. They're, they're, they're not reliable guides to reality, even in that kind of minimal sense. Um, and they're, they're in that sense, in a certain sense, not, not truthful. They do not reflect accurate judgments about what it makes sense to do in response to things in the environment. Now, some people would say that this is all the more reason to be mindful. If feelings can't be trusted as accurate, then it makes sense to evaluate feelings mindfully, objectively, and decide which ones you're going to let get traction, decide which ones you're going to um, engage with. In other words, to, to view feelings with discernment. And, and this is uh, a lot of what in Buddhism is referred to as wisdom, 
you know, understanding which feelings it makes sense to engage in and which feelings it doesn't. Now, I want to emphasize the way we've defined the truth and falsehood of feelings here is just one of many operational definitions you could kind of trot out. It's not the only way of looking at feelings. So, for example, you might say in the case of road rage, well, but wait a second, was it at least true that this person had committed some transgression, so in that sense, your rage was warranted? You, you can ask that question. Um, and in a way, when you ask it, you're veering into questions of moral truth. And I kind of think that maybe uh, moral truth could be what Yifa had in mind when she said that sometimes feelings seem not real. She may, may have meant they're, they're not real in the sense they, they don't align with moral truth, feelings like anger and hatred. In any event, Moral truth is something we're going to be paying more and more attention to as the course goes on. Certainly at the end when we talk about enlightenment, when we ask what is Buddhist enlightenment and does it deserve that term? Does it align a person's mind with truth, not only in the sense of an objectively clear vision of reality, but also in the sense of moral truth? Um, and we're going to start edging into questions of moral truth even in the next lecture when we're going to look at the Buddha's claim that the self, you know, this thing inside me that I think of as running the show, that the self is in some sense an illusion. As, as strange as that sounds, we're going to see that there's a fair amount of evidence in psychology to support the idea that the self is in some sense illusory, and that has really pretty radical implications, potentially, for how we live our lives, how we view our feelings, which feelings we choose to let govern us and which we don't, and also the question of uh, how we align ourselves with moral truth. Okay, so that is the second of the six lectures that constitute my online Buddhism course. If you want to listen to the final four lectures in this podcast format, you'll need to have a paid subscription to my non-zero newsletter, and then you can set up the newsletter edition of the non-zero podcast feed which, by the way, has all the publicly available non-zero podcasts as well as any bonus content, such as the Weekly Parrot Room podcast or the final four lectures in this series. Now, the video version of all six of these lectures is available to all newsletter subscribers, paid and unpaid. So if you want to watch any or all of those, just sign up for any kind of subscription to the newsletter and you will be sent the links to those videos. Those links will also lead you to a less formal part of the course, the office hours videos, which sometimes feature my very cute dogs back when they were a bit younger and a bit more spry. But weren't we all? Anyway, thanks for listening and on to lecture three.